Thank you, all the musicians. He is risen. And so shall we. Please join me turning once again to John chapter 20 as we will look into further into this text, which we read just a moment ago. I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you believe in Jesus? Now, your first thought might be, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm here at church on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning. What kind of question is that? Well, it's very interesting, as we'll see in our text this morning, there are people who say they believe in Jesus, but they don't really fully believe Jesus. In fact, we're going to look at Jesus' very closest followers. And they believed in Jesus. They followed him. They based their lives on him, and yet there were important things he had to say to them that they didn't hear. They didn't listen. They didn't believe what he clearly told them. In the text we just read, John 20, John shows for us, his focus is how a number of his believers came to, in fact, believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And the very theme of the book, he states at the end of this chapter, is that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you don't have life in his name, you don't really believe in Jesus Christ, no matter what you might say intellectually about his life, his death, and his resurrection. So John's purpose for us this morning is that we and I might believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, risen from the dead, and that in believing we might have life in his name. And if you leave our service this morning and you don't have that eternal life, you don't have that vital faith where you truly believe Jesus is your Christ, your Messiah, your Savior, you have entirely missed the point of Easter. Easter is all about believing Jesus rose and that Jesus rose for me. So again, I want to ask you, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he is the Son of God who became man, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life, that he died and paid for your sins? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he rose triumphant over sin and death and reigns forever in heaven? As I said, John shines the spotlight, as it were, on the faith of three of his followers on John, on Mary Magdalene, and on Thomas. And they are, as it were, case studies of faith, how each one was brought by the Holy Spirit to faith in Jesus Christ. That in fact, he is everything he said he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, who would die and rise again. That he really did what he said he would do. Well, let's look first of all at the faith of John. We find that Mary Magdalene is the first one at the tomb, and she doesn't find Jesus there. It says that she arrived at the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and found the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus' body wasn't there. So she runs quickly and tells Peter and John, as we heard in the song, quickly now, go tell his disciples. Well, she went and told them. But she, at this point, thought that they had simply moved his body. And so Peter and John, receiving this news, they run to the tomb. They make haste. 
Now, just, just, just imagine. I want you to use your, your sanctified imagination a bit this morning. I want you to think about what must it have been like if I could put myself into their place. You, as John or Peter, have watched your Lord die. You spent three years of your life following him, eating with him, uh, praying with him, listening to his teaching, serving him in countless ways. You've seen him calm storms and raise dead people. You've seen all these things, but then you saw him die. And it seemed like everything was over. How could it have ended like this? And then Mary comes and says, his body's not there. And so they run with an urgency to the tomb to see for themselves. Maybe it was just dark and she went to the wrong tomb. Who knows? But John gives us this little detail that he outran Peter. Doesn't tell us why. Was he younger? Was he more urgent? It doesn't say. We don't need to speculate. But he arrives in verse 5. It tells us that he stops. He stoops to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. But Peter came in. He followed John, but he went directly into the tomb. He, too, saw the linen cloths lying there. Remember, Peter was the impetuous one, right? He just burst right on in. John's a little more careful. But I want you to notice what they find when they get to the tomb. Really, what they found, but also what they didn't find. They walked in, they looked in, they found this linen cloth and the face cloth. In fact, John focuses three verses in this account to some pieces of linen cloth. Very specific about them. The linen cloth that wrapped his body, the face cloth was folded up and placed in a separate place. Why would John focus so much attention on these details? Apparently Mary didn't see those. She didn't know they were there. She thought Jesus' body was taken away, and there's no way. If it was grave robbers, they wouldn't have left the linens. If it was the, the, the religious leaders, they certainly wouldn't have left the linens there to give any indication that maybe Jesus had risen. So apparently Mary didn't, didn't see that, but James and John, or, or Peter and, uh, uh, and John did. His body is gone, but the grave clothes are still there. Now, again, they're in two different places. The, the, the burial cloth is in one place, and the, the face cloth is in another place. Uh, John is specific in those kind of details. There's all kinds of details John doesn't touch on, but he's very specific about that. And if you remember, just a few chapters before, John records Lazarus being raised from the dead. You remember that? Lazarus come forth, and Lazarus is all wrapped up in the grave cloth, and he kind of has to waddle out of the grave, and he tells others, come and unbind him. Take those cloths off of him. Jesus didn't need anybody to do that. It's like he passed through them, as it were. And he had no need for them any longer, so the face cloth was folded up in one place, and the grave cloth was in another place. So what Peter and John find is an empty tomb and empty grave clothes. For John, these are compelling evidences that Jesus had indeed done what he said. In fact, verse 8 tells us the other disciple, John never speaks, refers to himself by name. The other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which uh, it says earlier in the text, 
who reached the tomb first went in, he saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. What did he see? He saw those folded up grave clothes. He saw an empty tomb. And he did not see the body of the Lord Jesus. What did he believe? Well, he believed what the Lord had told him. Jesus had told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be arrested. I will be put to death. And three days later, I will rise again. In fact, Peter was so offended by that, he rebuked Jesus and said, that can never be. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You would think that would stick in Peter's mind. But the reality is, none of the disciples remembered that Jesus prophesied that he would rise from the dead. None of his disciples expected that to happen. Now, the religious authorities knew Jesus had said that. Now, they didn't believe it was going to happen, but they believed the disciples would expect it to happen, or that the disciples would conspire together to steal his body to make it look like it happened, which is why they posted a guard and sealed the tomb with the stone. But the disciples, it's like they didn't believe that Jesus would die. And once he died, they didn't believe that he would rise from the grave. And when Mary sees an empty tomb, she doesn't think he's risen. She thinks his body has been moved. But when John sees the empty tomb and the empty grave clothes, that's what he gives so much attention to. Then he believed what Jesus said really is true. He rose from the dead. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior. John believes that in the very fullest sense of these words. He believed Jesus is God. He understood, and he believed the gospel. Now, again, he emphasized for us, even there, neither he nor Peter had understood the scriptures up to that point that taught that Jesus must die and rise again. And we find these messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 16, verse 10, it says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And the Lord Jesus applied that to himself. Or in Isaiah 53, this wonderful uh, prophecy of the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the sins of the world. Isaiah writes, Yet it was the will of the God, of God the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. How's that possible? But with the resurrection. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And there are many other prophecies. And suddenly these come to light in John's mind. It's like the light comes on affirming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it makes sense to John. And it's like the scales fall off his eyes, and he comes to believe what seemed too fantastic and too impossible just moments ago. He saw and believed. That's John's testimony of how he came to believe in the resurrection. But now he turns and tells us about Mary Magdalene. And it's significant that John would focus on her testimony so prominently. She was the very first person the Lord Jesus actually appeared to after the resurrection. Who was she? Well, Luke 8 tells us that Mary Magdalene had a really difficult past. 
In fact, she had been indwelt by seven demons, and the Lord Jesus delivered her from those demons, and she joined this little group of women who followed Jesus and his disciples around, tending to their needs, providing for food and, uh, and, and other uh, living necessities for this band of disciples. Now, this is significant because in Jewish culture, a woman's testimony was not considered reliable. In a Jewish court of law, they would never, ever listen to a woman's testimony. In fact, one first-century skeptic rejected the story of the resurrection. He said, it's just, uh, it's just a testimony of a hysterical female. And so for John to prominently put Mary's testimony front and center is very significant. From the very beginning, Christianity has been countercultural in many ways. But one is that Jesus really did And disciples really did elevate the dignity and the status of women. And I think it's important we recognize that. Here's a significant significant example of that. So Mary and these other women go to the tomb early in the morning. Uh, John doesn't tell us about the other women, but the other apostles, the other uh, gospel accounts do mention her, but they all mention Mary prominently in there. John is focusing specifically how people came to believe, and so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, there are details that he doesn't feel the need to include. But she comes, and she finds the stone is rolled away, as we read, and she runs to tell Peter and John, she does not say, he is risen as he said. She doesn't know that. She doesn't believe it. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. She's despondent. She's, she, I think her, her grief and her confusion and her unbelief and her fear combined into a really, really messy despondency. But then in verse 11, we find her back at the tomb once again, and I'm sure that was after Peter and John had left. She makes her way back. They ran. She probably didn't run, but she comes back, and she, well, we find her there at the tomb weeping, outside the tomb. And that that word weeping, by the way, there are different words in the Greek language that mean to weep. This one is the idea she's sobbing uncontrollably. We might say she was crying her eyes out. She had seen Jesus die. And if that's not bad enough, now they've moved. She'd come to to anoint his body with, with, with spices and oils, but they've moved him. And it just seems so completely chaotic. But then... Inside the tomb, she sees these two angels in white sitting in the very place where Jesus' body was laid, one at his head and one at his feet. Now, they weren't there when Peter and John went inside. John, I want to mention that. And it's very interesting. The other writers tell us that Mary and and the women were terrified. John doesn't talk about that. Again, he's focusing on one thing, how she came to believe. And so the angels say, ask, why are you weeping? Now, just think about that for just a minute. Does it surprise you that the angel would ask Mary, brokenhearted Mary, why are you weeping? We get a hint of that question when we read in Luke where it says, he is not here, he's risen. Why would you cry? You should be celebrating. But see, Mary has not yet believed what Jesus told them would take place. He has risen just as he said. See, Mary thinks she knows what's taken place. They moved his body. No. Now, it's interesting to me. Here's Mary talking with two 
angels. I'm sure that never happened in her life before. But she's not thinking there's some miracle afoot here. She's still thinking Jesus' body was moved by people with bad intentions. And the angel showed up for I don't know why. I think she was distraught (laughs) in this moment. But then Jesus, verse 14, Jesus appears to her. Having said this, she turned around, verse 14, and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Now, don't give her a hard time. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus walked with Jesus for some time, and they had him at dinner that very same day. Uh, and, And they're sitting at the table, and he's telling them from the Scriptures how it was necessary for the Messiah to die and to rise again, and their hearts are burning within them, and they still don't have any idea they're talking to Jesus until he gives thanks, and it's the scales fall off their eyes, and then Jesus disappears from their midst. So, the angels have done their job. It's like they, they, they're gone now, and Mary doesn't recognize the Lord. John doesn't really tell us why, but, you know, it's consistent with what happened at Emmaus. And now she's, she's spoken to angels, and then she's thinking, this guy must be the gardener? Again, she's not making some connections, I think. But again, Jesus asked the very same question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she gets the same answer. She thinks he's the gardener. Well, maybe he knows, sir. If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. That his body might be properly cared for. And then something happens that changes everything. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. Called her name. And she turned and she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now she realizes the scales have fallen off. She heard her name coming from his lips and knew this is the master. And it's interesting here, Jesus says, don't cling to me. But rather, I want you to go tell my brothers what you've seen. Tell them that I'm alive. And immediately, Mary goes and tells the disciples. Now, that's, that's incredible if you stop and think for just a moment. In one moment, she's despondent. Where is his body? And now, here he is. And he says, now I want you to leave. She doesn't want to leave. She wants to cling to him. But he says, you go. You tell my disciples. She had banked all her hopes, all her dreams on the Lord Jesus. She watched him die. She believed it was all over. Her hopes and her dreams had been shattered. And suddenly she discovers he has risen again and everything changes. But he says, don't cling to me. Now you believe, go tell my disciples. And she obeys him. That's significant. And we're going to come back to that later in the message, but that's how Mary comes to believe Jesus. Now, let's look thirdly. John draws our attention to the faith of Thomas. In verse 19 and following, it tells us that Jesus appears next to 10 of his disciples. Now, do the math. Judas Iscariot, remember, had killed himself. He proved to be false. He betrayed the Lord, and then in regret, he couldn't find room for repentance, Hebrews tells us, and he went out and committed suicide. So now there's 11 Thomas was not there, so there's 10. Jesus appears to these 10 that very evening. 
The disciples are huddled together. The doors are locked. I'm sure Peter and John have told them what they had seen. They heard Mary's report. They heard the report of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, whoever they're, they're not named. So they have the information that Jesus has risen from three eyewitnesses and John who has come to believe it because of what he saw at the empty tomb. But they're still behind locked doors out of fear of the Jews. You don't find the kind of boldness here that we find in the book of Acts where the disciples are out in the streets proclaiming the name of Jesus and if they beat them, that's okay. They rejoice they were being counted worthy of suffering for the name. That's not these disciples. They are huddling in a locked room in fear. And Jesus appears. Did he pass through the door or just appear? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. But he gives them this greeting, verse 21, peace be with you. You remember what he told them in the upper room? In the upper room discourse in John 14, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives peace do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And they're terrified because he says, I'm going to go die. But peace I leave with you. And they're like, you've got to be kidding. And now here he is saying, peace I leave with you. And they go, oh, now that makes sense. Right? Here, look at my hands. Look at my side. And it tells us, John tells us, they were glad when they saw the Lord. Was it were they convinced by John's testimony, by the testimony of Mary Magdalene, the, the brothers on the road to Emmaus, or were they just more confused? We don't know. But we know they were really glad when they saw Jesus. And that's not John's focus, really, is their coming to faith. His focus here is that Thomas wasn't there, which we'll see in a moment. But Jesus causes their fear to turn to joy, and then he gives them this commission in verse 21. Again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit who would enable them to go and fulfill the commission which he's giving to them. And I, I believe the great commission, which we find in Matthew 28, it's repeated in Acts chapter 2. It's referred to here in a sense. I think it was something Jesus probably said quite a few times in those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. But he promised in John 16 in the upper room that he would give them the Holy Spirit. And now he breathes on them and bestows on them that Holy Spirit. But prominent in this narrative is that Thomas is not there. Thomas missed it. We don't know where he was. We don't know why he wasn't there. John doesn't tell us. If we needed to know, he would have told us. But now the other disciples say, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And Thomas is not willing to believe them. Notice, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into that mark, and place my hand into that wound in his side, I, not cannot, I will never believe. What is Thomas saying here? Is he in rebellion? Is he saying, I hate the very idea of a risen Savior? No, I don't think so. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. I really do. If we go back to John chapter 11, 
Jesus receives word that his friend Lazarus has died. And Jesus says, I will go. Or no, first he receives word Lazarus is near death. And Jesus says, I will go. But then he waits three more days until Lazarus actually dies, and then he goes. But the disciples are saying, no, Lord, you can't go there to Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem, and the religious leaders want to kill you. And in reality, they were afraid the religious leaders might arrest and kill them too. And doubting Thomas, I think it's a bad rap, I really do, because Thomas, of the other, of the 12 men, is the one who says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was willing to die at the side of his Lord. What he couldn't abide is watching Jesus die and leave him behind. That led to a real crisis of faith for Thomas. It's interesting. If you remember 1 John 1, John says, that which we have seen, looked upon, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, they all had that privilege. And that's sort of reflective of what Thomas is saying here. And it's like Thomas says, I don't care what you say. None of you believed on somebody else's testimony. I'm not either. If I can't see and even touch, I, I, can't, I can't risk believing that. In fact, the language he uses, it's, in, in Greek, you have a double negative. In English, a double negative, not not, means it is. You know, I will not not have lunch today. That means I will have lunch. And at our house, it's going to be really good. But anyway, um, but in the Greek language, a double negative means absolutely not. In fact, my Greek prof, when we would come to that, he would say, not, never, know how. Uh, and so we would humorously write that into our assignments, and he would put a little smile on there. But that's what Thomas says. I absolutely will not believe. I don't think he's stubborn. I don't think he's rebellious. That doesn't fit in with what we see of Thomas in John 11. I think he gladly would have laid down his life. What he couldn't abide was seeing Jesus leave them. I think what we're seeing here is a man in the grip of despair. Because all his hopes, all his dreams were in Jesus Christ. He had left everything to follow Jesus. He had put his hand to the plow and he had not turned back. He had denied himself and he had taken up his cross and he was following Jesus. And then Jesus has left him. As far as he could tell. That's not what was supposed to happen. Thomas is disillusioned. He's disoriented. Let me tell you, disillusionment is a dangerous place to be, Christian. And Christians get disillusioned sometimes where everything we hope for in the Lord seems to be gone. Read Lamentations 3. That's exactly what he says. I'm bereft of everything I hope for. Now, it's not gone, but he felt like it. But Thomas doesn't believe because he doesn't think he can afford to take the risk of that kind of heartbreak once again. But the Lord knows all about that. Jesus, Jesus knew he said those words. And so the following Sunday, Jesus appears once again for a week. They have not seen or heard from him, but he comes back to that very same room and he finds those disciples huddled in that very same room behind that very same locked door. But the only difference is Thomas is now with them. Now, I find it kind of amazing that Thomas is there. If he was that disillusioned, why didn't he just go home? Why didn't he just say, you guys, you're crazy. I'm done. I'm out of here. Why? 
The only answer I can get that makes sense to me is because God did not let him. God held on to him even when he lost his own grip. And these disciples all week, Thomas, you've got to believe this. I, can't, I cannot believe it. I will not believe it. And then Jesus comes and he stands in the room and he says once again, peace be with you. And then he does something amazing. He cuts right to the chase. Now, in my imagination, I think Jesus probably had a little bit more of a visit with them than is recorded here. I think they probably talked about a lot more than John records. But again, John has a very laser-like focus. What is he writing about? He's writing about how people came to believe in the Lord. In fact, he even tells us in verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which aren't written in this book. Many other signs, many other things he said and did. John's focusing on just this. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't say, Thomas, why didn't you believe? I told you. I I pointed you to these biblical prophecies. Why didn't you believe me? Why didn't you believe Mary's testimony? Why didn't you believe John's testimony? Why didn't you believe the testimony of your other brothers? There's no rebuke here. He simply offers his hands and his side. Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. and Put, your, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's the closest Jesus comes to a rebuke. Don't disbelieve, believe. It's more of an invitation. Kind of like, don't fear for I'm with you. The Lord doesn't say, don't be afraid, you little coward. No, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Jesus says, don't disbelieve. Believe, here I am. For you, right in front of you. And Thomas, he doesn't need to touch the Lord Jesus now. He thought he knew what it would take to bring about real faith, and that is not quite it. Jesus created him faith, and Thomas saw his face. He heard his voice, and he bows in his presence and says, my Lord and my God. Now, Hear me, doubting Thomas provides for us the strongest possible affirmation of faith that John records in his Gospels, because Thomas was not inclined to believe that Jesus would, could, or did rise from the dead. He thought it was an impossibility, and he didn't believe he could risk believing in it. And in just a moment, in an instant, he is bowing and saying, my Lord and my God, despite the testimony of his 10 brothers. He has seen, and he began to believe what he could no longer deny. As we've seen so far, this this theme of seeing and believing is critical in John's account of the resurrection. John sees the empty tomb, and he believes. He hasn't seen Jesus yet, but he believes. Mary sees Jesus. He hears her call his name, her name, and she believes. The disciples see Jesus, and they're glad. Thomas sees the Lord Jesus and believes and worships. And at this point, Jesus speaks not just to Thomas. He speaks to you and me. In verse 29, and Jesus said to him, but this is to us too, 
Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I would dare say there's not a person in this room who has truly with our eyes seen Jesus. We have not heard Jesus audibly speak our names. With the eye of faith and with the ear of faith, yes, we have seen, we've heard, we've believed as the Spirit has taken his word and applied it to our hearts and given us life. But we have not seen, yet we have believed. Blessed are those. See, Jesus gave these disciples everything they needed to have a real and vital and robust faith. And now he provides their testimony so that you and I will have what we need to have a real and vital, robust faith. Their testimony is foundational to us believing because they saw with their own eyes and could not deny any longer. It's very interesting if you know the testimony of Charles Colson. Chuck Colson was President Nixon's uh, legal advisor, special counsel. And he was involved in at least the cover-up after the Watergate scandal. And it's been said many times, the Watergate scandal that brought down the Nixon presidency, the, 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 the break-in that actually happened wasn't the problem. It was the cover-up after the fact. So you have this, this conspiracy of some of the most highly educated, professional, powerful men in the country agreeing together, we are going to keep this quiet. We're not going to tell anybody. We've got a story we've come up with. That's our story. We're going to stick with it. You know how long that lasted? Two weeks. One guy began to sing like a canary, and suddenly everybody else did. They're all trying to cover their tracks, and it all fell apart in two weeks. And Colson made the observation, not one of us was facing the possibility of death. Our lives were not threatened. Our livelihood was. We're going to lose our our, our, our legal, our, our, we're going we're gonna to be disbarred from being able to be attorneys again. We're going to be humiliated. Some of us are going to go to jail, but they're not going to kill anybody. Those things that we idolize would be taken away. But we couldn't keep that together for two weeks. The most powerful, well-educated men in the country. And he said, in jail, he looked and he, he, he compared that to these 11 disciples, 12 when Matthias was added who said, we have seen with our eyes. See, I can tell you, I believe Jesus rose, and you're going to go, I believe you really believe that. But you didn't see it. You don't know. You could be wrong. Because I'm not telling you I saw it with my own eyes. I'm telling you I'm convinced it's true. But here are these men saying, we have seen this with our own eyes. And you have to say, either you didn't see it, or you did. Either you're lying or you're telling the truth. And for Colson, he said, it's inconceivable that these 12 men, for 40 to maybe 60 years, John lived probably into the 90s, could hold a conspiracy together and not one man would crack at the very risk of their own lives and at least 11 of the 12 suffered martyrs' deaths and not one of them ever recanted his testimony because it was true. People will recount, people will recant what they know to be true sometimes when their life is on the line. But not one disciple did. People will die for something they deeply believe but may not be true. Look at 
Islamic martyrs who give their lives because they believe they'll get 72 virgins on the other side. They really believe it. No, no, it's not true, but they believe it. But they didn't see it. These men said, we have seen the Lord. And each one gave their lives and testimony to that reality. So let's draw some lessons this morning as we conclude from the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. First of all, Jesus' sheep hear his voice. In John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Mary heard her name. She knew his voice. Now, we don't hear his voice audibly, but we know. When the Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God, it has that ring of truth, and we know God has spoken, and we believe. See, faith is a sovereign gift of God. He speaks, and we hear. Jesus goes to Mary and to to, to the disciples. He, he takes that sovereign initiative and gives them what they need so that they will, in fact, believe. He takes the divine initiative, and he does that with us, too, in bringing us to a place where we hear his voice and we follow him. Secondly, I want you to see that real faith changes everything, but it doesn't necessarily change it overnight. It doesn't change everything overnight. Mary immediately is willing to do exactly what Jesus says. From one minute we find despair and hopelessness and then we find this robust joy and, and, and enthusiasm and obedience. And the disciples had that. But they're still hiding in a room. In fact, the second week they're still hiding in a locked room. Fear of the Jews. Now in the book of Acts, they're spilling out into the street and proclaiming boldly the resurrection of the Lord. And when they were beaten and told not to speak Jesus' name. They rejoiced. They were kind of worthy of suffering for the name. Then they gathered together and they prayed, God, give us even more boldness. It took time to get there, didn't it? It didn't happen immediately. Change takes time. Third thing I want you to see is that Jesus accommodates our weakness. Psalm 103 says, He knows our frame. He's mindful that we're but dust. He meets us where we are and He gives us what we need. He gave Mary what she needed. He spoke her name. He gave John what he needed. He brought to mind all he had promised when John saw that empty tomb and those grave cloths. He gave Thomas what he needed, and for each one it was different. So God's initiative to us, the work of God's saving grace is sovereign. It's also individual. Fourth thing I want you to see is that real faith produces real obedience. Mary immediately did what Jesus said to do. She wanted to cling to him. There's no way she wanted to leave. She didn't want to let Jesus out of her sight. But there was no argument. There was no hesitation. There was no negotiation. There was immediate obedience. And that was true for the other disciples. Now, some people will say, oh, of course I believe in Jesus. Yeah, happy Easter. I believe he rose from the dead. But you look at their lives, and you don't see a life oriented around obeying Christ. They're going their own way. They're living their own lives. They're trying to be the captain of their own ship and yet still somehow proclaim that they believe in the Lord Jesus. But hear me, saving faith doesn't cause you to incorporate Jesus into your life. Saving faith, Jesus becomes your life. He reorders and rearranges your life so that you order your life around knowing him, serving him, seeking him, obeying him. If you love me, he said, you will do what? You will keep 
my commands. Another lesson we find here is that genuine faith produces heartfelt worship. Mary, as soon as she comes to believe, Rabboni, this word of adoration and respect, my, my rabbi, my teacher, Thomas sees the Lord and he proclaims my Lord and my God. If you're genuinely trusting in Jesus Christ, worship is your delight. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us bow down and praise his name. Let us declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. That becomes our delight because we've experienced that steadfast love and that faithfulness, and we want to proclaim it. We want to celebrate it. We want to rejoice in it, and we want to tell others about it. Genuine faith produces heartfelt worship, not just going through the motions. And then finally, saving faith is not dependent on what you see or touch. It is a sovereign work of God that he does in our hearts. Thomas thought he needed to touch. He, he didn't. But here's an interesting thing. I can guarantee Thomas still had questions, and Jesus didn't answer those questions. But immediately Thomas believed, and over time, he found those questions. Either they, didn't answer, they, did, either they got answered, or he found they didn't seem to matter as much. What was unclear became clear, or it became insignificant. There's a divine order here. Some say, I will never believe until God answers this particular question for me. Why did my loved one have to die? Why did my son have to be disabled? Why did uh, I have to uh, go through this hard experience that I did? Why did I have to experience molestation? I've counseled people who have asked that question. And unless I know the why answer, I will never believe in this God who says he's in control of everything. You know what I found? I found that we believe that we have to see in order to believe, but the reality is if we believe, we'll begin to see what we never would have been able to see before. If we will really trust God for who he is and what he says, those things revealed that he has revealed will make a whole lot more sense, and the things he has chosen not to reveal will take less and less significance. Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children that we may keep his commandments. And as we believe what he has told us, we begin to see things in an entirely new light. And things that didn't make sense suddenly, either they make sense that they didn't before or they don't matter as much because we have something new and something real. And like Thomas, maybe you heard those answers that didn't, didn't, you couldn't connect dots, but suddenly the scales fall off and it all becomes clear. He clears up the fog when the scales come off. And let me say this to you all. Some of you, you're here every week. I know you, you know me. Some of you, I, I don't know you. I don't know I, I, what brought you here this morning. I may never see you again. But I'm delighted you're here this morning. And I, I want to ask you this question. Do you believe in Jesus? See, the resurrection compels us to take some kind of action. If you believe that the resurrection is true, if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you must respond in some way. You either respond by saying, I don't want to follow, I don't want to believe, I don't want to 
commit myself to him, or you say, he has risen. I need the Lord Jesus. It is an utter contradiction for you to say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and then for you to walk out and believe and live as if you, he had not. Let me say that again, and I'll get it clear. It's a contradiction for you to come in and say, I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and then to walk out living as if he had not. But if he rose, that changes everything. He really is who he claimed to be. He's God in human flesh. He really did what he claimed to do. He died to pay for the sins of every man, woman, and child who will ever trust in him. And he really, truly did rise from the grave, and he truly does deserve your life, your faith, your devotion, your worship. And he says, if you believe, you will have life in his name. So do you believe in him? Is, do you believe in him in such a way that you now live for him and you follow him and you have a vital life-transforming relationship with him that leads to joyful obedience and heartfelt worship? Is that you? Or are you kind of like the outsider looking through the window going, that looks kind of interesting. Jesus invites you to come on in. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thought. He will abundantly freely pardon and you might be saying oh, wait a minute wait a minute you don't know what i've done how can god abundantly forgive and freely pardon me for all i've done that's why i love this is in, in isaiah 55 i love the following verses turn to the lord seek him while he may be found call him while he's near let the wicked forsake his way and righteous man his thoughts he will uh he will freely forgive and abundantly pardon for the lord says my ways are not your ways Neither are my thoughts your thoughts, as my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. See, I wouldn't forgive some of the things I had done, <laughs> but God's ways are higher than mine, and he does. Don't be afraid that you could come to the Lord and he say, I'm sorry, you're just too bad. I'm sorry, you're just, you, you don't qualify. The more you recognize you need Jesus, the more eagerly you're welcomed and received He's given you everything you need to know. He has laid his word out for you and said, come, the invitation is there. And he promises there's great blessing in store for all who will believe, won't you? Would you bow with me as we pray? Our Father, we give you praise this morning for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you. We serve a risen Savior. And we look forward to the day he will come and take his people to himself and we will reign with, with him and dwell with him forever. Thrill our hearts this morning once again with that resurrection joy and that resurrection confidence, with that peace that is promised to his people. Father, I pray that any in this room this morning that have never truly bowed the knee and served the Lord Jesus, never truly trusted him, would you cause those scales to fall off and would you cause them, enable them to believe and find you irresistible, that they would run to Christ even as John and Peter ran to that tomb. They would find you and they would find your blessing for the rest of their lives. Would you make that a gracious reality, whether it be a man or a woman or a child in this room? that we might say he is risen, and he is risen in me. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.